McCarthy is is flailing about, but uh, you know he's he's not gaining, and he lost a little from the first vote, but he has not lost subsequent support. I mean, basically the battle lines have been the same now for um, all of us on Wednesday, and as we're in the middle of the ninth vote, all the votes on Thursday too. So. You know, if, if, if McCarthy was falling apart, he'd be losing support. But if he was gaining, I guess he'd be gaining support. So I, I don't know. It just feels like stalemate. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondik. Thank you for joining us. As you heard from that teaser, we are talking about the current vote in the House of Representatives for Speaker. We are recording this on Thursday afternoon as Congress is in its ninth round of voting. Representative Kevin McCarthy from California still has not been able to lock in the 218 votes he needs to win the Speaker of the House. Kyle, I wonder if you can talk a little bit as we are in this ninth round, what is there to gain by continuing this process I mean, it may, it may frankly be that Republicans don't necessarily have the votes to adjourn for, you know, for these for these previous votes and, and the one we're in the middle of right now. Um, and in fact, it was kind of dicey when um, there was the vote to adjourn on Wednesday night. And I mean, it was like a very close vote. Um, so, you know, it's just it's just tricky. I mean, it sort of feels like McCarthy's basically just like giving away the store to, you know, his detractors. But. He's given up stuff and it's not necessarily leading to more votes on the floor. So he's still like, you know, he, he needs he needs 218, assuming everyone votes. There's been one present vote, Victoria Sparts of Indiana 5, who previously was a uh, was a McCarthy supporter on earlier ballots. Um, you know, so so if if there's if if the present vote comes out of McCarthy's tally, it doesn't really help him all that much in the overall math. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, McCarthy needs he doesn't need all 21 of the people who aren't voting for him now, but he needs almost all of them to get to 218 and just has, isn't happening. You, you mentioned the concessions and, and um, uh, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about that. He's, he's agreed. We know based on reporting as of now that he's agreed to a proposed rules changes that would allow just one member to call for a vote um, to oust a sitting house speaker. Um, He had initially proposed a five member threshold and that's down from the current conference rules that require half of the GOP to call for such a vote. He's also agreed to allow more members of the Freedom Caucus to serve on the powerful House Rules Committee. By having them on the House Rules Committee, that would they would be able to have more of a say in what kinds of bills come to the floor. Um, and so I, I wonder if you can just talk a little bit more about some of the concessions we know he's made and what the implications of that might mean as we look at this 118th Congress. Yeah, some of the people who really know um, House and Senate procedure, um, one person I really like is uh, um, Matt Glassman, who used to be with the Congressional Research Service, who's with uh, Georgetown now. I know he he and some others don't really view the motion to, to, to vacate as that big of a deal, really. For much of history, I, my understanding is it really only took one vote to do that. And in order to oust the Speaker, the whole House would actually need to need to do it. Now, granted, with with a majority being so small, um, 
McCar- you know, McCarthy could, there could be a motion to vacate, you know, McCarthy could be speaker later on here and maybe he would get dumped via that rule. Um, um, but it, you know, if there was significant opposition to McCarthy anyway, then, then I think they'd be able to figure out a way to, to depose him. So there's been some seem to believe that that's being made. Maybe there's maybe been too much made of that. Um, but you know, you know, potentially having more freedom caucus folks on the rules committee, that's potentially important. Um, you know, you could see these sort of, you know, it's possible that maybe depending on what the lineup would be, that maybe um, a combination of like House Freedom Caucus folks and Democrats could maybe block certain key legislation that Republicans want to do. Um, you know, also that just just the the I think the Freedom Caucus folks just sort of want more more like kind of formal po- power within the you know with within the, the the Republican conference, and this is what they're sort of uh, they're sort of uh, um, battling about. Um, there was another agreement with uh, Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the basically the, the biggest outside spending player in House Republican politics these days. Um, and that's not it's it's sort of connected to to um, to the you know to, to Speaker McCarthy, you know they agreed not to get involved in state safe seat primaries, which they don't really do a lot of ultimately. And also, I don't necessarily know how they're formally defining safe seat primaries, but you know you could imagine CLF being an important force in essentially trying to fight for establishment oriented candidates against sort of the kind of the, the, the more rebels within the Republican Party and that weapon, which hasn't really been used for a ton, but um, that weapon, at least in certain races, is now maybe off the table for for McCarthy if he was if he's speaker. So, I mean, I do feel like that, you know, the the the, the people who wanted concessions have been I think they've been getting a lot of concessions, but it's not leading to more support. And also, like, you know, from a timing perspective, couldn't some of this stuff have happened in November and December as opposed to now? Like, couldn't McCarthy have gotten his ducks in a row? Like, you know, Nancy Pelosi had to get her ducks in a row after the 2018 and 2020 elections, elections that she was able to do so. Now, I also think that, you know, whatever you think of Pelosi, politically speaking, um, she's really an excellent vote counter. I mean, just in terms of the kind of blocking and tackling of congressional politics, she's, you know, she's, she's an all timer on that, on that front. I think we talked about that a little bit when she, um, on, on this podcast, when she, when she decided to to step down from leadership after the election. Um, and I think it's probably unfair to maybe, you know, to hold everyone to that sort of Pelosi level standard, but, you know, McCarthy, you know, going back to his days as the, you know, as the majority whip, um, you know, I don't think it was known as a great vote counter, and it, you know he's not distinguishing himself in that regard now. Um, so anyway, it's just it's just this very strange situation. I mean, obviously, we haven't seen this in um, in a very long time, uh, and as we're talking here now, in the middle of the ninth vote, I don't necessarily know how it gets resolved. You actually wrote in the crystal ball before we went to the first vote that a multi-ballot <laughs> uh, speaker election hadn't happened in 100 years. <laughs> so I don't know if you called it into being um, with your crystal ball piece. <laughs> um, but I wonder if you can can just give us a little bit more background on how we even got to a multi-ballot speaker election. Yeah, last time was uh, 1923. I think it was actually in December because the House used to convene later on, um, way back then. And um, you know, I'm not going to get too much into history, and I don't consider myself necessarily an expert in it. There were a lot of multi-ballot speaker elections um, earlier in in American politics. I think the longest one was in the 1850s, and you know, that was a time when our sort of party system was even kind of like realigning. You know, you you can date the 
the, the our current two party alignment, the Republicans and Democrats, back to the 1850s, and you know the death of the, the old Whig Party and the rise of the Republican Party in the Civil War and all that. And obviously, things have changed a lot over time, but we have had those you know those two those two major parties ever ever since then. But um, you know, just one just major feature of of Republican politics in general is that there's been um, there's been this sort of like kind of rising sort of anti-establishment block in the party and sort of populist block. And um, it's sort of coming to a head now in that, you know, you do have a, a, a critical number of, of Republican House members who, for a variety of different reasons, have just decided they're just not going to get in line here. And so we're, we're sort of hashing this out now, um, which on one end you could say, well, it's chaos. On the other hand, you could say, well, this is a party that has a lot of internal divisions that is trying to figure things out. Um, and, you know, frankly, some of the things that the insurgents want, you know, reducing the power of the speaker, Frank, you know, fundamentally, that's not sort of a new request from rank and file House members, historically speaking. And I, I can't sit here and necessarily say it's an unreasonable request. Now, there also, I think, are some of the rebels who are maybe less ideologically motivated and they more just kind of want, you know, they just want Kevin McCarthy's head, basically. That's probably a little bit harder to defend in terms of like a good faith, uh, you know, negotiating tactic. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so even within this group of 21 who have not consistently voted for McCarthy, um, there are differences among that, that group too. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the detractors because you wrote about them in the crystal ball in another piece and, and listeners, we have both, we have links to both of those, um, in the notes. Um, so there, you looked at the 21 Republicans who did not back McCarthy on all of the votes, both on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, and I think it's the same group also, um, as we are recording on Thursday and up to the middle of the ninth vote, um, who have also continued not to back him. Um, your analysis looks that shows that they come primarily from uncompetitive districts and um, are either connected directly to the House Freedom Caucus or House Freedom Caucus adjacent. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about this group and how choices in the Republican electorate have helped create this anti-McCarthy coalition. Um, and and what is it that they what what is it that they want? Well, there's been, um, you know, a lot of, you know, there, even though on one hand you could say, oh, well, incumbents, you know, almost always win re-election or win renomination or very often win, there's also always just a lot of retirements and even some resignations over time. And so there is this churn in terms of the makeup of the, of the, you know, of the House and also um, the Senate, maybe to, to a little bit lesser extent in the Senate. But, you know, there's a lot of turnover and if you just look at you know some of the people who have cycled out and some of the people who have replaced them, you know you you, you see you see some of those folks show up in the you know in the people voting against Kevin McCarthy. Um, uh, you know, an example I think is is uh, is is Bob Good, who is uh, Virginia's fifth congressional district representative, represents Charlottesville University of Virginia, and also a lot of part lot, a lot of that district is is a lot less liberal or slash progressive than than Charlottesville and the UVA uh, can, uh, grounds are. Um, but you know, he defeated Denver Riggleman, who isn't even a Republican anymore, in a convention in 2020. Um, Riggleman was part of the Freedom Caucus, but I 
kind of think that in a vote like this, he probably would be um, likelier to vote for, you know, for, for, for Kevin, for Kevin McCarthy. Um, you know, you had a member versus member primary last year in Illinois, uh, Mary Miller, who's one of the no votes on McCarthy defeated Rodney Davis, who um, is, uh, was, was is certainly someone who would have backed McCarthy and was close to leadership. You know, there are a few other instances. Now, granted, you do have, you know, about 20 or so, um, you know, rebels, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, I don't necessarily know if you can, you know, how you, you know, you, you could say that events of the last couple of years that didn't necessarily produce all of them, but it did produce some of them. Um, and is contributing to some of McCarthy's headaches now. Um, and, uh, you know, again, as to what they want, I mean, I think some of them just don't want McCarthy to be speaker, no matter what others. And I would say like, like Matt Gates sounds like he's sort of in that category and Gates is kind of more kind of like a, Kind of like a, I'd say almost kind of like a celebrity congressperson at this point. Um, then you also have uh, like Chip Roy from Texas, who I think is more kind of ideological and is making some, I would say, sort of more substantive critiques of um, leadership's domination of the legislative process. And again, like whether you agree with Roy or not, and reasonable people can be on both sides of that. I do think there is an aspect of what some of the things he's saying that is that's at least made in good faith. Um, again, I wouldn't necessarily say that about all of the. McCarthy critics, but they aren't all necessarily just grandstanding, I guess, is the way I would, the way I'm sort of interpreting it. We know some about the concessions that they're asking for um, or demanding and, and that McCarthy has given up, but I wonder in so doing, um, you know, what does that pretend, especially for moderates and others in the Republican Party, even if McCarthy ends up getting the speakership? I mean, look, I, I think if you're, if you're a kind of mainstream Republican, I don't think there really are that many actual moderates left in the Republican Party. And, and I would I would say the same thing really about the, the Democratic side too. You know, that if you go back 20, 30, 40 years, the, the both of the, the party caucuses were more ideologically diverse than, than they are now. But some for the folks in more competitive districts and those who are, you know, closer to the center, um, they're probably looking at this and saying, wait a second, <laughs> we keep voting for McCarthy. McCarthy keeps giving stuff away. He doesn't have the votes. Maybe at a certain point, do you think, hey, we should go a different direction because we don't necessarily want to hand over our conference to, um, you know, these these rebels within the party. So that has not happened yet because, um, you know, McCarthy started with 203 votes. He dipped to 202 and then the 201, um, but he stuck at 201 at least through the eighth through, through the eighth ballot. And as I'm looking at, at C-SPAN on my other screen here, it looks like that this vote is unfolding much the way that the previous eight have unfolded. Um, but you know, something's got to give here because, you know, we can't necessarily just keep doing that. You know, one thing I forgot to mention about the, just the political circumstances of the, of the, 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 the rebels here is that most of them are in uncompetitive districts, although a handful of them are and have had close races in recent years. Um, every one of them is in a Trump one district. There are only 18 Republicans in Biden one districts, but um, Scott Perry, who's the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, he is in a you know Republican leaning but competitive um, district in um, uh, Central Pennsylvania. It contains the state capital of Harrisburg and a few other places, and it's been trending a little bit more Democratic in recent times. Donald Trump only won it by four. Um, Perry had a reasonably close 2018 election and, and was competitive in in 20 and 22 as well. And then more notably, I think is Lauren Boebert, who is again one of the kind of big rabble rousers, I guess, on the Republican side, um, you know, she came very close to losing in a district that no Republican really should should be losing these days in Western Colorado, Trump plus eight. She only won by uh, two tenths of a point. Um, 
And I wouldn't say that her close call has really changed her behavior in any way, um, which, you know, is fine with, uh, you know, a lot of folks in that district, but I think is, is causing her some trouble otherwise. So she, she wants to hang around Congress. I do think she probably needs to be careful. Um, because, and just broadly speaking, Colorado is totally going the wrong way from a Republican perspective. So you you mentioned that most of these holdouts, the rebels, uh, one are, are in Trump one districts, um, and Trump has also come out and told them to vote for McCarthy um, to be Speaker. Does that tell us anything about? Trump's influence on on this group, or or what does it tell us about Trump's relationship with the House Freedom Caucus and any influence that he has at this point um, on on this vote? Um, look, it, you know, I think it does show that that there are maybe limits to Trump's influence. Although it doesn't sound like he is, you know, calling people up and really t- aggressively twisting arms. Um, and maybe that changes at some point, but. Um, I think I saw some anecdote today that you know somebody mentioned talking to Trump, and and it sounds like they weren't necessarily getting the, this hard sell there. Mm. So, you know, Trump may at a certain point decide he's going to kick McCarthy to the curb or something. Um, but you know, it's it's it it, it, it it's uh, um, uh, you know again, Trump just can't necessarily say jump, and every single House member will will do it. Um, and also, you know, Trump became a presidential candidate again in November after the election, and. You know, it hasn't been a particularly public campaign. You know, it hasn't really done a whole lot. Um, and there are other people in the Republican Party who, you know, they're thinking about running for president. And, you know, I just wonder if if he maybe just doesn't have the same kind of juice that he used to have. Um, but that's a story that's going to be, you know, continue to be told over the course of 2023 and 2024. So in addition to this House Speaker vote, uh, there's also been revelations about the newly elected Representative George Santos from New York. Um, what does this week broadly tell us about what the Republican governing coalition looks like at this point and what might happen in the 118th Congress? Well, I mean, you know, you have seen some Republicans be pretty critical of uh, George Santos, uh, 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 James Comer from Kentucky. He was a pretty high ranking member. Um, he was, uh, um, uh, he, he called him the most valuable liar <laughs> in an interview earlier today. It's a sort of an eye popping kind of thing. So, I mean, that's, you know, this isn't some backbench member from a Biden district or something, you know, I mean, this is a, um, a, a, a you know, a pretty big guy with, with oversight and whatnot. So, so, you know, we're, we're just going to have to see, I mean, but you know, McCarthy, as far as I know, hasn't really said much about, um, Santos in part, because I don't think he can afford to lose any votes because, because Santos has been dutifully voting for McCarthy. Um, otherwise sort of staying silent and in order reporters, you know, I think it's going to be hard for Santos to hold on sort of in the long term. Um, although interestingly enough, and this is something that, that I really did not realize until this whole process started is that, you know, the, the members are not members yet. <laughs> in fact, I shouldn't even say men members, they're members elect. Um, and so, you know, because they haven't been sworn in yet and the, the rules go that you elect a speaker and then everyone gets sworn in, it's actually starting to cause some problems because there have been some, um, some folks who are elected, you know, whether they're new members or old members or what have you, that, um, they, there are certain things they need or, 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 you know, meetings they need to have classified information they need to get, and they're really not able to get that stuff going. Um, and so the longer this goes on, you know, the, the more it sort of affects the actual nuts and bolts functioning 
um, of the house. But in terms of Santos, because he's not actually, I mean, I guess you could say their terms have begun, but they're still members elect. And um, it would be easier to challenge his qualifications as he's still a member elect. However, the, what, you, what we consider to be quote unquote qualifications to be a house member, Santos passes all of those. You know, he's he's the right age. He's um, uh, uh, you know he lives lives in New York, or at least says he does. I mean, it, it's sort of the basic the, the 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 qualifications laid out in the Constitution to be a U.S. House member. Um, you know, the fact that he's basically lied about much of his backstory. Um, and that even that he maybe have potentially committed crimes, if, if in fact there are some things wrong with his um, with his disclosures and fundraising and those sorts of things, that's that's a story yet to be told. But those aren't sufficient to prevent him from taking office. And, and I suspect if the if the House voted, which doesn't seem like they're going to do this, but if they tried to vote to block um, block him from taking office, um, that that there'd be a lawsuit that that Santos probably would win. Um, but then there's a question of like, if he is convicted of something down the line, could he potentially be expelled? Of course, there would be a, um, a special election in, in that district. Since it's a very competitive district, I mean, the red wave hit um, New York last year, but but this a you know it's a Biden plus eight district, so it's one that Democrats could very well win back in a special election or in, in the 2024 um, uh, regular election. But you know, at this point. The Republicans can't really mess or, or McCarthy can't really mess around with any members who are voting for him because, again, he just needs all those votes he can get. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is he has Santos has already agreed to not run again in 2024. There has been reporting. And I think it was actually um, our friend Olivia Beavers from Politico, um, UVA grad, who has been doing great work covering this whole thing um, over the past several days and covering the Santos story. Um but uh, she reported that that he has supposedly told um, some New York uh, GOP officials he's not going to run again. But <laughs> this guy's word does not seem particularly good. You know what I mean? And so um, I, we will just have we're just gonna have to wait wait and see on him. But I just just have to think that given all the things that have been exposed, that he would lose a primary or lose a general election. Um, uh, and again, I, I I do wonder if he's even going to you know make it through the whole term because it just seems like there are lots of storm clouds, lots of unanswered questions about him. Yeah, so the other thing that the Santos case has raised for me is like, what is the state of opposition research? <laughs> yeah, you know, some of this stuff got reported and um, at least by some like very kind of small local press. But it was it's also interesting. I was thinking about this when the, when the New York Times kind of broke the, the sort of pushed all the stuff out in the open that, you know, the, the district is, you know, Nassau County, you know, the New York city suburbs slash exurbs, it's a very expensive media market. And there just wasn't a whole lot of buzz about this race. It's an open seat race. Um, and, you know, part of it may just be that, you know, it's so prohibitively expensive and inefficient to advertise on New York city broadcasts that just dollars were just going elsewhere. But, um, and also I think Republicans sort of, I, I don't think maybe they knew the extent to which, um, Santos had sort of lied about things, but I think they knew there was something fishy about his candidacy. And so they were never, you know, they weren't trying to spend big money there. They, you know, when I was talking to, you know, people working on the, you know, the, the national campaign stuff, um, they, they weren't really talking up George Santos, some sort of great candidate. They really liked Anthony Diaz-Pizzito, who um, was running also in Nassau, you know, south of the district Santos won, a much more democratic district. But Diaz-Pizzito also won. He actually holds um, 
the best Biden district of any House Republican. But um, House Republicans really like the Esposito, and, and you know he seems to have a good bio and a real bio as opposed to his uh, neighbor to the north. So one more question for you today, Kyle. Um, we're already looking in. You're already looking into 2024. Control of the House of Representatives has been held by small majorities for the last two consecutive election cycles. What are you thinking as we look to House control for 2024 when there's just 75 seats in the most competitive range? Yeah, look, I think that that you know the, the districts may change some. It seems like uh, Republicans in North Carolina and Ohio may be able to throw out um, uh, you know maps that uh, were not necessarily imposed by courts. It was the case in North Carolina. The Ohio situation is more complicated, but. Um, Republicans in those states might be able to draw better gerrymanders for themselves in those states, which um, you know may end up resulting in them, them netting you know a few a few seats combined in those states. But broadly speaking, I think the battlefield is is competitive. The, the House majority for Republicans is very small. Um, you have more Republicans in Biden seats, eighteen, than you have Democrats in Trump seats, five. Um, so I think we should just sort of approach this, the house as if it, you know, it's basically a toss up for 2024 and we move on from there. You know, the, the, the house, you know, it seemed like the Democrats were more clearly favored than they were in 2020 seemed like the Republicans are more clearly favored than they actually were in 2022. You know, they did both end up winning the majorities those years, but, but sort of disappointing kind of elections for both of them. You know, this time I think we could just say, Hey, you know, this thing starts as, um, is very close to competitive. And then we just, uh, we just go on from there. Well, Kyle, uh, enjoy your next cup of coffee as you watch C-SPAN and the wrap up of the ninth vote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, again, I, maybe this thing comes to a resolution soon. Um, maybe it does not. Um, the ninth vote looks like it is basically concluded. And as I look at C-SPAN right now, I think the, the, the tallies are about the same. So, um, you know, no, no real end in, in, in sight here, but, um, they got to figure this out sooner or later, because again, the house needs to function. Yeah. You know, that, that we sometimes talk about, you know, easy reforms, you know, maybe that's something that, that we do in the future is, um, is get, get these folks sworn in so they can actually, you know, do their jobs as opposed to just, you know, sitting around and waiting to be sworn in and, and being reps elect instead of actual members. Um, one, you know, let me just make one other point, <laughs> you know, as weird as this whole thing is and historic as, as it is, um, you know, Center for Politics, myself, you, others that are our colleagues, you know, we, uh, we're interested in civics education and participation and, and teaching people about what's going on in, in Congress and how things work. And I think for all of us, this whole thing has been an education in how electing the speaker works. <laughs> and sometimes you get you get this sort of unprecedented event. I personally, you know, I feel like I'm learning more about it and a lot of other people are. Now, does that, you know, that doesn't give any comfort to the Republicans trying to hash things out here, but um, I think it has been sort of an interesting learning experience and something that has, uh, um, I think, broken through to the broader public, you know, wondering what's going on. And you do wonder if maybe there's a, you know, the Republicans have already had these problems with, uh, um, you know, uh, some voters feeling like they're they're not responsible enough or mature enough. You know, if, the, if there are people who feel that way, this, this probably doesn't help allay those concerns. So I do think it's 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 both interesting and sort of educational um, and also potentially meaningful um, politically down the road as, you know, in addition to being obviously very important for what the House is just going to look like and how it's going to operate over the next couple of years. 
Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time.